My name is Jerry McIntosh. I don't know that I think I've met most everybody here. And uh, Pastor Mike asked if I would uh, take the class this week and next. He told me he had been discussing the Old Testament. And so he said I could do anything I wanted in the Old Testament. And I've been doing a um, study on the life of Christ um, with a coursework that I'm doing. And um, we talked about the resurrection in that study. And we came across Jonah. And so I thought Jonah would be a good subject to cover this morning. And so I appreciate um, Pastor Mike. He is um, probably right now, I'm guessing he's on a plane over the Atlantic somewhere and will be landing later this evening, uh, probably in the middle of the night, our time. And then we'll be teaching Monday morning at the Bible Institute for the week. Sue is also there now. She's been visiting the grandkids and uh, supporting the missionaries. She took, a, took Christmas over for them and Thanksgiving. And so um, I'm sure they're having a lovely time now. And Sue's probably uncomfortably hot. That's the nature of uh, the work there. Let's pray as we start this morning. We're grateful, Lord, for the privilege that we have to be here. We thank you for the message that uh, we've heard uh, already today. and We'd ask that your spirit would be in attendance in this room and that you would guide us in this um, discussion and that our time would be spent profitably. I pray that you'd help me to get out of the way and that your spirit would minister to and through each of us today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So, the, uh, oh, I've got a clicker here somewhere. The story is the book of Jonah. It's only four chapters, a fairly short story. And um, we don't know a whole lot about him. Jonah was mentioned in the New Testament and also by other prophets, but he's not real prominent. Uh, except for an extraordinary story about a fish. And what's interesting about Jonah is that the plot of the story isn't completely resolved. You get to the end of the, of the book, and Jesus or God has a conversation with Jonah about the repentance of Nineveh, and that Jonah was not pleased with that. And um, God asks the question, should I not have pity on this city and all the livestock and the women and children, question mark, end of chapter. And the question is almost rhetorical, intended for the reader to decide for themselves. So anyway, um, go down to advance. I'm gonna just start here with uh, the outline because I don't wanna take the time to read the whole story. I think most of us are familiar with it. Um, but in the beginning, uh, Jonah is running from God's will. Uh, he receives a commission in um, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He takes off the opposite direction, actually goes to Tarshish, which is in modern-day Spain, and uh, really takes a different direction up the Mediterranean. Um, Jonah is pursued through a storm. He is preserved by the fish in verse 17, and then he submits to God's will in chapter two. Jonah depicts his own helplessness in the first few verses. He prays to God, he repents, and he is delivered in verse 10. The commission then is renewed in chapter three, and the prophet obeys, the city repents, 
and the Lord spares Nineveh for a period of about 150 years. Well, Nineveh is ultimately destroyed later, but it's preserved for a lengthy period of time. And then uh, at the end, there's this discussion of a plant, and God miraculously raises a plant to provide shade for Jonah, and then he provides a worm to eat the plant as sort of a metaphor of, um, of the... Um, and the prophet is displeased with the loss of the plant and then ultimately rebuked. So that's just of the story. I'm going to get into some details um, that are particularly interesting in the book. The author is probably Jonah. There's one reference uh, where he says, I, Jonah. The reason that it's brought into question is because the book is generally written in the third person. Um, he talks about Jonah as if he were not himself. And so that raises questions on the part of some people. Well, did he really write the book or did somebody else? Um, he writes from the perspective of being inside the fish. And so uh, in chapter 2, and so that would probably give him a unique perspective. Probably didn't have any company in there. And so that would also lend credence to that it was... Jonah. Also, Joel, Micah, Zephaniah, and Haggai were minor prophets who also wrote in the third person. And so that appears to be a pattern in that, at that time. Jonah came from a place called Gath-Hefer, and it's near where Nazareth was later, and that's depicted in 2 Kings 14.25. It was likely written between 793 and 753 B.C., and it was written during the reign of King Jeroboam in the northern kingdom. And uh, you recall, uh, David dies, his son Solomon takes over, Solomon goes into rebellion, goes into sin, and God judges not Solomon so much as he does his household. And so um, he has two sons, uh, uh, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and uh, the uh, kingdom is uh, divided between north and south after Solomon's death. And this book was written apparently about the time of Jeroboam's son, Jeroboam II. Um, and so Jonah was a prophet to the 10 northern tribes of Israel. Here we go. Um, the setting, it was, it was interesting to me, the setting was of a time of relative peace and prosperity for the northern kingdom. Again, in 2 Kings 14, it describes the uh, depiction Syria and Assyria was weak. Now, often um, people get confused, well, is it Syria or is it Assyria? And uh, originally it was Assyria, and uh, over time, they dropped the first vowel, and it just became Syria. And uh, I'm sure that would happen during somebody's kingdom. I don't recall exactly which. Um, but uh, so it's, it's generally um, can be used interchangeably, although Syria is uh, used in later references. And it's interesting that Syria still exists. Um, at that time, when Syria was... Um, it was a huge place. It was a huge kingdom. And uh, it went up into Iraq, into Iran. It went into parts of Turkey. And it, was a, it took, a, took up a, a huge amount of real estate. And the city, um, well, the um, 
kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel, was wealthy and they had peace and that made her bankrupt spiritually, morally, and ethically, again, according to 2 Kings. Um, Amos was a contemporary of Jonah and it makes reference in uh, chapter 5 of the book of Amos between 10 and 13. I thought of that as significant because it seems to be a picture of our own time that we tend to become corrupt when we are comfortable. And uh, that seems to, be, it seems to be more so now than even when I was younger. Nineveh is a big place, about 60 miles long. The huge, the, it was, uh, some sources say it was the capital of Syria at the time. I didn't have any reason to doubt that. That is a huge city with lots of um, suburbs. And it ran along uh, a city that was historical for its cruelty. Uh, they were cruel to the people they conquered, but they were also cruel to their own people. And uh, without getting into, too, into the weeds too much, the cruelty involved um, plucking the eyes of their conquered kings, skinning people alive, um, uh, yeah. doing uh, mean things to women who were pregnant. And it was, just, it was just brutally cruel. And so you can gain, an, and they did it also to Israel. And so you can gain an appreciation why um, Jonah was a little hesitant to go to uh, Nineveh to preach repentance. Uh, and he says in the book, I know that you are a God of mercy and that you will extend mercy on Nineveh and I, they don't deserve it. They need to burn. And so he was, uh, he was upset with God. And uh, it was... It's interesting to me how candid he was in, um, in his writing. Syria was the enemy of both Israel and Judah, and it was founded uh, by Nimrod, who was the great-grandson of Noah. I didn't know that, um, but um, that's depicted in Genesis 10. And then it was probably the largest city in the ancient world, and it was named for a fish goddess. I thought that was significant in that uh, God, again, has a sense of humor. You know, at the time of the Egyptian plagues, there were 10 plagues, and they tended to be focused upon Egyptian deities. Um, Egyptians worshiped the Nile, and so God turned the Nile into blood. Uh, Egyptians worshiped the sun, and so God created darkness. Uh, God says, you like frogs? They worship frogs. So he gave them lots of them. And uh, here, in this case, uh, God uses a fish to communicate um, to the Ninevites because Nineveh worshipped fish. That was how they made their livelihood. And so um, Nineveh was, in fact, named for a fish goddess. So the mission was uh, that um, Jonah was to go to preach repentance to the nation, to the Ninevites. It was likely influenced by politics and a sense of spiritual superiority. Uh, there was in, in much of the writings of the Old Testament, the Jews are aware of their special calling before God. God had selected them from all of the, all the nations of the earth to be his chosen people. And uh, that gave them a certain amount of cockiness um, in, their, in their writing, and particularly writing to themselves or depicting themselves. And again, uh, Jonah may have, may have, we're speculating here, may have considered the Ninevites to be undeserving of God's grace 
um, given um, their past sins and brutality. The other possibility is that God may have wanted to prompt Israel to jealousy by, re by giving repentance to the Ninevites. Um, because they were arrogant, because they were cocky, it very well may be that God wanted them to, to the, the nation of Israel to see God's grace extended to Nineveh, this undeserving, corrupt, brutal people as a way of drawing Israel back to himself, not inconsistent with what he's done in other places. There are other places in Syria. Nineveh was, is now in Iraq. Tarsus, where Jonah was fleeing to, um, it appears would be in Spain. I don't know that for sure. Uh, Damascus is in Syria, still there. And uh, Antioch, a place in Acts where the Christians were first referred to as Christians, uh, depicted in the book of Acts, was also in Syria. Now, <clears throat> one of the, probably the most uh, talked about details of the story of Jonah is what do you do with this fish? There are people, there may be people here, who regard the story of the fish as allegory. Is the story of Jonah intended to be interpreted as history or like the example of um, the Psalms where attributes of God are depicted as man-like, it's called an anthropomorphism. Um, Psalm 91.4, he shall cover thee with his feathers and under his wings shalt thou find rest. That's like a bird. God has the attributes of a bird. Well, that's intended to be more metaphor. It's poetry. And so some people have, in this age of science, and many Christians have said, well, I don't really think that God sent a literal fish. And I think that it was probably intended to be a metaphor. Um, the people that we share ministry with in Africa, we've had this very conversation. And so... Um, I want to camp on that just a little bit because it presents some theological problems if you take that position. Uh, now there are, in my uh, commentary, there were two fish types that were depicted. Uh, Jonah was in the fish for three days and three nights. He could have probably survived without eating and may have been okay if he had not drunk. I don't know that I'd want to drink anything that I would find inside a fish. Um, but it's probably not likely that he would have survived without breathing for three days. And so how do you solve, or how do you address the problem of Jonah being in the whale, being in a fish, excuse me, for three days and surviving the experience? Can you imagine if you were a Ninevite and this guy shows up on a beach having been in the belly of a fish for three days. I can't imagine he smelled very good. Probably still had seaweed and fish guts in his hair. And um, I know that most creatures, including fish, have this chemical called hydrochloric acid in their bellies, including people, that helps us digest things. And so I can imagine his skin was probably a different color when he came out than when he went in. 
And so if you're going to take the story literally, there are certain details you have to consider. And the two that have been suggested was one was that there's a blue whale that is, has a mouth that's big enough to swallow a horse, actually, um, whole without chewing. Um, and there's also a blue shark that would qualify. Um, <clears throat> I'm inclined toward option C up there on that list. And this goes back to other difficult challenges that you have about miraculous events in the scripture. Now we're coming on Christmas, and whenever we read the Christmas story, we read the, the passage in Matthew, you hear about the wise men. I've always been fascinated about the wise men, and I've heard different explanations about the star. What do you do with the star in the Christmas story? And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them. It moved. Till it came and stood over where the young child was. It pointed positionally. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Now, if you've traveled in an airplane, airplanes tend to fly at about 35,000 feet. At what point, if you could freeze an airplane in a moment in time in space and stop it in its mid-flight, how easy would it be to say, well, this plane is right over that house down there? I mean, you can see counties from 35,000 feet. And that's nowhere near how high a star is. It's an interesting dilemma because the star was not only not 35,000 feet, we're talking hundreds, maybe 1,000 feet, and it moved because it guided the men from the east, the wise men from the east. So I think that God created a special star. When When you come around Christmas time, it's fun how people of science try to explain the star as, well, it was an alignment of these particular stars, and it's, the explanation is completely unsatisfactory, given how the star is depicted in Matthew. I think God created a special star for Bethlehem that parked over the house where Jesus was, where they were in a house by the time the, the wise men got there. I think the same is true of Jonah. I think God created a special fish that would accommodate Jonah for three days and three nights. He has to breathe. And so unless this fish is doing a lot of surfacing like whales do, that's where I think people, well, it must have been a whale, it must have been a mammal, because it breathed, and that's how Jonah would get oxygen. I think that's where people get that depiction. But there's another possibility that I hadn't considered before. If you look in the chapter 2 of the book of Jonah, I'm going to find it here. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. And he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. And he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. And you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me, and your billows and your waves passed over me. And I said, I have been cast out of your sight, 
yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. That's where I got the weeds in the earlier depiction. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth and its bars closed behind me forever. You have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. So one of the possibilities is because Jesus then later refers in Matthew to Jonah. If you go to uh, the Sistine Chapel in um, Rome, (laughs) I've got to remember where it was, um, there's a depiction of Jonah on the roof, on the ceiling, and it has Jesus in in a secondary position to Jonah, where Jonah is looking at Jesus. And the point that the artist is making is that Jonah was first in the resurrection in terms of coming out of the belly of the fish, because Jesus says, as, using a metaphor, Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, or the fish, so shall the Son of Man be. So it's conceivable that Jonah died. That would certainly solve the oxygen problem, wouldn't it? Wouldn't need any oxygen. And then was resurrected after three days. Possibility, I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, but um, that's an interesting consideration. Now, how many of you were at uh, Pastor D's class this morning on... uh, on theology. He's talking about interpretive methods, hermeneutics. And <clears throat> he, um, the two points that, he, points that he made relative to Jonah is that the scriptures are often written as history. And when you read it as history, you interpret it as history. Um, when I was in school, we were told when literal sense makes the best sense, use no other sense. And so history is how the first three, excuse me, the first two chapters, correction, one, three, and four chapters of Jonah are written as history. Chapter two is different. Chapter two is poetry. In fact, when you see, when you read chapter two of Jonah, you see imagery and language that resembles the Psalms as poetry. And you recall that David lived and then Solomon and then Jeroboam one and then Jeroboam two. So there's three generations have passed since David was alive and wrote the Psalms. And it would appear from reading this second chapter of Jonah that Jonah was familiar with the Psalms, because the style of writing, the words used in the imagery are very similar. One commentator said, you could take the book, the second chapter of Jonah, out of the book of Jonah and put it in the Psalms and it would be very comfortable there. But it's different than the other three chapters, which tend to be narrative. Another little interesting detail, in Jonah 117, It talks about the fish as dog. It uses the Hebrew word dog, dag, which is masculine. And that's a masculine word for a fish. In 
Jonah chapter 2, verse 1, it refers to the fish in the feminine. Masculine versus feminine. Now, if you're a skeptic, you're saying, well, here we go again. The authors of the scripture or the, or the translators couldn't get the thing right, couldn't, didn't know what they're doing, and so they messed up the uh, translation of Jonah chapter 2 because they used the wrong uh, word, uh, syntax, uh, uh, gender, in depicting the fish in Genesis, or in Jonah 2. I don't think that's the... I don't think that's what happened. Daga is a word also used to describe the belly of a woman. Now, what is the unique feature of the belly of a woman different than that of a man? It has a womb. And it's possible, I think likely, that Jonah, (laughs) writing in poetry is depicting the fish and in being inside the womb. It is the womb that nurtures. It is the womb that carries. And ultimately, it is the womb that delivers. And so I think the use of the feminine for fish in Jonah 2 was a deliberate because he was writing poetry. And he was depicting an image probably much more understandable to his own culture than it might be to us just reading it in English because in our text, fish doesn't make any distinction in gender. Interesting detail in Jonah 2. Now there are three themes in Jonah and um, we won't get all, to all of them today but God is sovereign and, and it's, it's interesting Whenever God gets involved in a conversation with a prophet or with Job, the conversation always goes back to his creation, God as creator. And so God very well could have created a special fish for Jonah's deliverance. And God is sovereign. God is merciful. God extends grace despite our disobedience and despite the disobedience of the Ninevites. God could have just as easily let Jonah drown in that ocean and found another prophet to go after Nineveh. But he was merciful to Jonah, and he depicted that in the last image about the plant. And God gives second chances mercifully for all of us. So I'm going to take one point, uh, and I call it how to pray yourself out of a jam. How to pray yourself out of the belly of a fish, male or female. <laughs> and um, there's some principles that, um, that I want to draw out from this. Number one um, begins the word then in chapter 2, verse 1. Um, he says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. And <clears throat> in Jonah's case, Jonah was in trouble because of his disobedience. And you and I often can find ourselves in trouble because of disobedience. But it doesn't necessarily follow that when we find ourselves in trouble that it's a consequence of disobedience. And in fact, Philippians 1.29, 
it says, to you has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. The point is that suffering is as certain as salvation. To you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, salvation, but also to suffer for his sake. There's a certain corollary, there's a certain parallel of being a disciple of Jesus Christ that involves discomfort, that involves shaping and growing and maturing. Jesus himself suffered. Jesus was perfected through suffering. Now that doesn't sound doesn't sound proper. Jesus was God. Jesus is God. Jesus didn't need perfecting. He was already perfect. How could, how could it possibly be that Jesus is perfected through suffering? Hebrews 5, though he, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who be, obey him. Why did Jesus suffer? How would you respond to someone posing a question on that verse? Why did Jesus need to suffer? He needed to have the human, the human humanity. He needed to have a human experience. He, needed, uh, he suffered in all manner as we are and yet without sin. Is it possible that Jesus could have been legitimate as our high priest had he not suffered as a human? Now this passage is talking about his suffering on the cross. We also know that he got thirsty, he got tired, uh, and he got frustrated. So there are other details of suffering, but it was that suffering on the cross, in particular, that the writer of Hebrews depicts here, as necessary for Jesus to be perfect. In other words, use complete, established. So the suffering that Jesus endured was necessary for him to be complete. James says, consider it all joy my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. So when I'm in a jam, when I'm enduring trial, one of the things for me to consider is, is there a reason beyond in terms of my own disobedience, that has prompted the suffering. But it also may be like Job, who did nothing wrong, but was suffering just because it glorified God. Jesus was asked by his disciples, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his sin or the sin of his parents? Jesus said, neither. This man was born blind so the works of God may be manifest in him, that God may be glorified. God is glorified in our response to trial. And that may be why we endure trial. Sue and I have a, um, we're dealing with a headman in Sierra Leone. We bought a piece of property there. And the headman um, in a place called Tisana, which is a headquarters for witchcraft, or the voodoo. And 
he decided that we didn't pay enough for the land because property values have increased as the country is developing and that the trees on it were his. So he came cut down the trees, the two valuable trees, and the rest of them are palms, which are not considered valuable. I like them, so that's fine. Um, and then he's got into a dispute with us over the boundary. And in recent weeks, we've really had a sense, Sue and I have mentioned independently, a sense of oppression, a sense of being attacked. And I wonder, I speculate, if it has something to do with this guy in Sierra Leone. And so my prayer is very specific uh, and about a hedge of protection, that old phrase that we use in our prayers around my family. Peter, my son-in-law, has enlisted the, uh, the assistance of an attorney to help navigate through the whole boundary dispute. But he included in the correspondence to this headman that if anything happens to his children or any of the kids in our orphanage, which is in Tisana, that we will hold him to account. This headman. The voodoo witchcraft? The voodoo witchcraft. See, in our, in our culture, voodoo and witchcraft and demonism is sort of theoretical. But there, it's very real. It's, it's as real as a traffic ticket. And so Peter, from his own experience, has communicated to the headman that if anything, if an accident, a snake bite, a, you know, something happened, a disease, an, an unusual disease happens to my kids, we're coming after you. I don't know, what do you do with that? I mean, it sounds kind of like an idle threat to me, but uh, it was interesting to me that he felt compelled to make the point through the attorney. We live in a sinful world, and suffering, being in a jam, is just a part of it, especially if you desire to do something for the kingdom of God. So Dr. David Jeremiah, one of the commentators I read, has a, um, had a phrase that I just, I just thought was, was a good phrase. God loves to put us into situations where there is no avenue of escape, where we have to depend upon him to get out of a jam. And Jonah recognized when he was in that fish, he wasn't going to get out of that fish by himself, that he was dependent upon God. Jonah tried to flee from the presence of the Lord in one, chapter 1, verse 3, and he was successful in his own mind. Verse 4, He says, but the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. So that this is chapter 1, and the chapter 2. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. And then I said, I've been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. So Jonah tried to flee, and God granted him his request, and he was cast out of the sight of God in verse 4. Now, the other thing that um, you will have understood from the class that Pastor D taught this morning on the subject of hermeneutics, which is the science of interpreting Scripture, is that revelation is progressive that you read in Genesis and you read through the prophets 
And the more you read into the scripture, the more you come to understand the mind of God. And he depicted specifically Paul, who seven times said, behold, I, sh I tell you a mystery, a new revelation, something that hadn't been revealed before. Well, when we go to Revelation 2, chapter 2, verse 5, there's a model here that would seem to apply in Jonah's situation. Um, and he's talking to the church of Ephesus, and he says, Remember, therefore, from which you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. So he has a nice, uh, and I, I've alliterated it here for purposes of a, of a message, but he has a three-point step to get yourself out of a jam. First remember, then repent, and then do. He says, do the works, uh, the first works, or restore the first works to keep the R uh, alliteration going there. So in Genesis, uh, Jonah, I don't know why I'm stuck on Genesis. Jonah chapter 2, verse 7 He says, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. And so Jonah, when he was praying to God in Jonah 2, remembered the Lord. My prayer went up to you in your holy temple. And then, secondly, repent, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Repentance means saying the same thing about my sin that God says. And so those who regard worthless idols, Jonah writes, forsake their own mercy. With a voice of thanksgiving, I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. I was going the wrong direction. God directed me to Nineveh, and I will pay what I have committed. And then restore and do, I will pay what I vowed. And then the last two chapters of Jonah depict Jonah following through on the commandment that had been given to him by God. Well, there's some objections that people have about obedience. And one of the th principles that I think is necessary as we consider praying ourselves out of a dilemma is praying in obedience even if we don't feel like it. I don't feel like praying. I don't feel like reading the scripture. I'm tired. I'm distracted. I'm bored. I'm busy. When I was um, doing more consulting than I am today, my work was principally directed toward work environments. And that was getting people to be nice. And the premise is that when, when people manage their communications effectively and efficiently and solve problems with each other, there's nothing more effective that you as a leader can do for your organization than get people to get along, get people to manage their stuff. And that was the whole basis of my practice. And so for about 10 years after I left the hospital, I was, would go to businesses, usually healthcare, but also construction and not-for-profits, and I would teach Sunday school classes to business people. I taught one of my uh, topics in Africa when I was there 
in early October on principles of influencing, principles of power. And there are 20 principles, and the last one is that forgiveness is empowering. Led to a fascinating conversation because these people had been through 10 years of civil war. Many of them had experienced families being murdered or having their limbs cut off, other atrocities during the war. How do you forgive after something like that has happened? Most of these people are Muslim and really don't. The the notion of forgiveness is foreign. It's not something that's part of their teaching. And so it was a genuine curiosity, but I've also had the same curiosity in talking to managers in the U.S. Who, for whom forgiveness is foreign. It's not something that's part of our life. Anyway, I remember a particular conversation with a nurse who hated another nurse that she worked with. This was in a, in a fairly intensive work environment in a hospital. In Africa? No, this was here. This was in the States. And so I thought, I can't let this go. She said, I hate this person. I'll never be nice to them. I said, I, I can't. <laughs> I can't let that pass. <laughs> and so I said, can you think of any redeeming virtue that this person possesses. We'll call her Mary. Can you think of anything valuable or redeeming as a human being that this person has? No, I can't think of it. She's pure evil. I mean, that was pretty intense hatred. Nah, you got to do better now. I said, somebody else here. Who's, say something nice. But Mary wasn't in the room at the time. A little risky. But I said... Um, Somebody tells something, oh, she's, she's a great nurse. She does a good job. She follows through, and she, I mean, she has all these attributes. Would you agree with anyone? No, I wouldn't agree with any of those. Finally, after about five minutes, when she came to understand that I wasn't going to let her go, she says, okay, well, she's a good nurse. Why is she good? Well, because she follows through. Would you be willing to tell Mary that? No. <laughs> and after another five minutes of harassment... I said, I'm not leaving this topic until you make a commitment to go say something nice to Mary about what she does. We had another meeting a couple weeks later, and I came back to this nurse. I said, how did it go with Mary? No, it's fine. Did you have the conversation? Well, you weren't going to let me get away with it if I didn't. So yeah, I told her she was nice. So she was a good nurse. What happened from that? We had a conversation about nursing. What do you think of Mary today? She's fine. Sue didn't like me when she first met me. This was when we were 16. We attended the same church, and she thought I was... Well, she just didn't give me the time of day one way or the other, but her mother did. Her mother, Yola, liked me. And Yola said to Sue, you be nice to Jerry. And Sue obeyed her mother. And now 42 years later and three kids, that's the product of our behavior influences how we feel. That's the point. It's the point of Proverbs. When we, when we do things 
out of obedience, when we do things out of commitment, our feelings tend to follow. It's as natural as rainwater. It's just the way we're designed. It's like our, our mind convinces us that if this behavior, if this person is deserving of this behavior, they must be worth my affections. And our mind changes. So a key strategy when I don't feel like praying, pray anyway. A key strategy when I don't feel like reading the Bible, read the Bible anyway, out of obedience, even if it's dry, even if you're in Leviticus and you can't slog through the thing. Read it anyway, because God honors obedience, not just theoretically back in the Old Testament, but here right now today, God will honor obedience when we are gracious to people that we would not otherwise be inclined to be and when we obey his teaching about his word and about fellowship with him. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man opens the door, I will come into him and have fellowship with him and have dine with him and he with me. And that's got to change how we think about things. What if I don't feel like it? Pray anyway. I've tried, but I keep failing. I keep blowing it, and I get tired of it. If you have your Bibles, um, turn with me, if you would, please, to Psalm 107. It's a great psalm uh, we don't often talk about, but it, um, it depicts the point of Jonah in terms of persistence. So the psalmist is writing about the nation of Israel, And he is writing about God's faithfulness to the nation of Israel. And it's a fairly long psalm, 43 verses. I mean, it's not 10 or 15, like some of them. And so, um, but but there's a point to that. And it begins in verse 107, in verse 6 of Psalm 107. And then I cried out. Well, there's there's a story, the pattern sort of follows Judges, where the nation of Israel will be going along just fine, and then they'll fall into sin, And then from sin, they fall into calamity. They get themselves in a jam, and they cry out. They cry out to God. And the first one is in verse 6. Then I cried out, and God shows up, and he rescues them, and everything's cool again. And then they're cruising along, and um, uh, they fall into sin again. And then verse 13, seven verses later, and then I cried out. And God rescues them. And you can read in the, the detail in between those verses. So here's once and now twice where God has rescued the nation of Israel from a jam. You'd think that would be enough, right? They get the point now. We've learned our lesson. We're going to be obedient now, right? No. no. Same pattern happens again. They fall into disobedience They get into a jam. They call out to God, verse 19. Then they cried out, verse 19. And the same pattern happens again. Come on now, three times. You got to be kidding me. You got to get it now right by this time, right? Mm -hmm. It's got to be, you got to learn your lesson. Same thing happens again. Now he's speaking future tense. 
In the, past, in the first three passages, he's speaking past tense, and then now he's speaking future tense. Then they cry out, they will cry out. It's going to happen again, folks. It's human nature. We are people of clay. What's interesting in verse 26, he uses the, uh, the metaphor of a drunk, wobbling to and fro like a drunken man. And it's like, what's the matter with you people? Are you drunk? Can't you get your act together enough to be faithful to God without having to con- continue to be rescued? The capstone of the verse of the chapter is found in verse 43. Whoever is wise will observe these things and they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. And uh, it's, it's the point that the psalmist is making is God is faithful to us and will we'll be patient with us, but we have to be willing to humble ourselves and to cry out to God, and he will respond. He will rescue us. 